HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Communication Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're exploring the future of eating animals, and we're going beyond typical meat sources. If you look at the length of human history, we've been eating insects a lot longer than we haven't been in the United States and Western Europe. We're looking at unusual ways to purchase meat. People are like, really? Why would I want to buy that out of machine? And we introduce you to Frank Reese, a poultry farmer whose traditional farming methods are featured in a new documentary. I'm a fourth-generation farmer in Kansas, and I focus basically all on standard-bred poultry and have my whole life. He's kind of the last one standing with these rarefied breeds that are so important for if we're going to eat chicken and turkey into the future. He's essential. He's a national treasure. Listen to Meat and 3 this week to better understand the history and the future of meat. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, we have Christopher Croner, who talks about how cooking is like playing a concert and putting out a cookbook is like putting out an album. And then we have Primo live in studio, who talks about the daily battle of living in the gray. Sit back, relax, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. We talk about food. Talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes.
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, coming to you from Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Sitting across from me is Christopher Croner. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Hey Greg, how are you? I'm good. You're in town for an entire week of events and promos around your new book. Very exciting to have you here. It's been uh, wonderful so far. Yeah? Cooked a lot of burgers. How many burgers have you how many burgers do you cook in like a promo week? It depends. So we last week we did a dinner at Diner in Williamsburg, and I think we served about 250 people. Um, we cooked last night at Ops and served about 100 people. We have a little demo at Williams-Sonoma tomorrow, and then an event for Vice where we'll serve another like 100-ish people. Um, but three weeks ago, back in California, we uh, served burgers at a big comedy festival at uh, Civic Center in San Francisco, and we served 1,800 burgers. And are they all, do the sizes change from event to event, or is there like one standard burger size? It's pretty consistent for the like festival stuff and like the outdoor stuff. Um, because of the associated costs, we can't use, like to, to produce 1,800 burgers, I can't get buns from Tartine. Right. Because they just can't, you know, churn out 1,800 burgers. You're like, we need you to stop production. I'm going to need 1,800 burger buns for fans who are so drunk they can't tell the difference. Exactly. Really appreciate it, Chad. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's like if you could just lay off on that LeVan for like a weekend. You get it. Come on, man. Help someone just else. Just make burger buns. Just make burger buns. That, that was your always your vision. Exactly. To get to a point exactly. where you could just make burger buns. Uh, you met Chad when you were first starting out. Yeah, so I um, I had a friend in culinary school who also worked as a manager at Tartine Bakery. She introduced me to Chad. Um, we actually went to a White Stripes show at the Warfield. I think it was it was after Destyle, so it was whatever the album after Destyle was. It wasn't White Stripes and Gossip, was it? Oh yeah, I was. I saw that tour in Boston. Yes, I distinctly remember seeing the Gossip open and thinking, "Well, this band's going to be huge." White stripes are fine. And then the white stripes were fine, but every time I saw the white stripes, I just thought, when was the gossip going to get their due? Which they finally got. But that, that was a moment. Totally. That was a really... I don't know. That was, that was that period of music, like, after I left high school and was a real sad boy uh, in Michigan at college. <laughs> um, Did you have the appropriate sad boy music? Totally. What was on the playlist for that? Uh, back then, I listened to Tricky a lot. Um, there was... Uh, now what's... I'm trying to think. There was a funny... It wasn't like actually a Tricky album. It was like Cigarettes and something. What the hell was that called? I don't know, but I listened to Max Aquay a lot. Um, and then what was... God damn it. Now I can't remember. The... Uh, album that had the the woman's hands it was like all blue the glowing like orb on the cover anyway listen to a lot of tricky um massive attack all that type of massive stuff. attack portishead all of that and then like nine inch nails oh appropriate yeah. very appropriate i'm sure it was very great to come back to your dorm room and be like set the mood totally yeah so you met chad um and you two went to a lot of shows when you started working for tartine where was your club and like did you have any pre-show rituals, or how totally. would you appreciate, approach it? Um, so I so I became friends with Chad. Uh, ended up 
working at Tartine Bakery, but not as a baker. I was the only guy that worked at the counter. Um, I also lived directly above the bakery, so they had this apartment that no one would rent because when they turned on the giant bread oven, it made the bedroom really <laughs> hot and like made tons of noise. Uh, so they used it for storage. And then uh, Chad and Elizabeth and their generosity allowed me to live there. And we, he wasn't going to let me pay rent and I insisted on paying something. So we agreed to $200 a month, which I had to give directly to him, which we would then immediately go out and spend eating. Oh my God. So where would you, I mean, would you go through a ritual of like handing him the cash and then you'd go out? Or Pretty much. It was like, here's rent, wink. It's like, okay, going to go deposit it, double wink, and then you just go out. I would use, so because I live directly above the bakery and there's a little like spiral staircase that went, uh, down from the apartment um, to the back door of the bakery where the walk-in was, I would usually go downstairs. He would be shaving bread. I would give him the money. He'd tell me what time he was getting off work. And then we would go out to eat. Um, we ate... Very often we went to a restaurant called The Slow Club, um, which was at the corner of Mariposa and Hampshire in kind of the outer mission near right a block from Petrero. Um, and so we would often go there chad would bring a loaf of bread for the chef sante salvoni uh we would give him a loaf of bread and then we would eat um that was my first that was like a a very transformative burger for me uh so we, we would generally what made it transformative for you it was just like really well constructed like i hadn't had a restaurant burger that was like that it was like it was all Take me through the components. So it was um, a bun from a bakery called Panorama, which was like two blocks from the slow club. Uh, at the time, they used beef from Nyman Ranch. It was grilled. Um, and then in like very California of that time, it had uh, like mixed greens, mm. um, Dijon mustard, Onions that were like slowly caramelized in balsamic vinegar. Uh, and then mayonnaise served on the side. Uh, tomato when they were in season. Um, and they were generally served like pretty rare. But like the bun was grilled and it was soft. So it was both like crispy and soft. Uh, it had all the right like acid, a little bit of sweetness, the crunch from the greens. And then really good beef. Was this kind of the first burger that opened your eyes to what burgers could be? Totally. And that it led to, I mean, the, the other, the other thing that like then I, so I was in culinary school and I worked at the bakery. I had next to no money. Um, generally. Uh, and so that a burger was a really easy way to go and eat at restaurants that I couldn't necessarily like afford to like buy a bottle of wine and have a full meal, but you could go, to the bar and have a burger and a drink and still get some sense of the place uh, and experience it in that way. It's like this really easy point of access. Um, what are some of the defining characteristics you can pick up from a burger that can give you insight into a restaurant? I mean, if you like, if you look at like a well-constructed burger, like it involves a lot of, like it can involve a lot of technique. Um, I mean, f like for me with like, with the Kronenberger, like we have a very specific grind, we use very specific cuts, we dry age, like all of these things. There's all like it. It's it is just like a four and a half ounce patty of beef, 
but there's so much like time and thought that went into that. Um, in addition to that, it's like depending on what the sauce is, like you have something emulsified or how you treat the onions and the bread that you use and the consistency. And there, there's just a lot like a good restaurant burger actually takes a lot of thought um, and care in its preparation. And you're also, I mean, like at the slow club, half of the entrees were burgers. Mm. And it was a tiny, it was like a, a closet of a kitchen with like a little grill, six burners, oven, one fryer, and a little tiny cold station. Um, and it was really, really busy. So to have both like great entrees and great, you know, food other than the burger and have the burger be good and not just like a fuck you here, like, God damn it, here's another burger. Um when all like when everything is good, it like it actually takes a lot of care and coordination and thought. So, what were some of the shows that you and Chad saw at that time? Um, I mean, we saw so many. Uh, I remember seeing uh, Caliphone. That was an amazing show. We saw uh, right after uh, TV on the radio had released their first EP. I didn't even really know them. Um, I saw them at Bottom of the Hill, and it was just uh, Kip, Tunde, and Dave. Like That was like a mind-bendingly amazing show. Um, I feel like we saw the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Uh, saw uh, like Nick Oliveri and some members of Caius perform. Like, that was fucking amazing. We would also um, go often with uh, Michael Ricuti, the chocolate maker, and he had an even like more eclectic taste in music. Um, so we saw some, some like hardcore and punk and just experimental, like free jazzy, all sorts of stuff. It was like, that's an, it's an amazing club. Did any of the shows you saw or any of the musical experiences lead into the beginning of your burger evolution? Or were you inspired by any of the artists you saw on how you approached putting together your burger? I mean, I, I often think of, and especially now that I've written a book and like had the experience of like creating something that involves so much of like what I've spent my working life doing and like consolidating it into this single document and then like releasing it to the world, to people who don't know who I am or know anything about me or whatever, um, and could, you know, they could love it. They could hate it. I have no control. I don't have any interaction with them. Um, I guess re- releasing the book is, is, has been the closest, like, analog that I see to uh, a musician's process of writing and creating an album and then just, like, releasing it to the world um, and not really having any control over... Uh, how people experience it um, in I mean and then like from thinking about like a restaurant and, com- and comparing performing to cooking in a restaurant like the, the slow club uh, the kitchen was right in, right next to the front door like right next to the host stand it was completely open it was super small so we every single night interacted with every guest that walked in the door and there was like there's nothing separating you from them um so so that was interesting so in in a way like that was it was kind of this like performative oh interesting so cooking in a small restaurant is like performing in a small club and putting out the cookbook is 
like putting out an album. Kind of. Interesting. I, mean, I don't know if there's probably a lot of musicians that would be offended by that analogy, but I don't think so. I think that when you're you can bring the crowd back. Like let's say that you misfire a burger, you have the opportunity to refire a burger and if you start a song poorly you can replay the song. But once you send the album out there and once you send it into the world, it's the same thing like a cookbook. They might cook from it and go like, I don't like this recipe. Or it's not the same explanation that I thought, or I wouldn't have gained the same insight that they're giving to me. Totally. And at the same time, um, comparing like listening to an album to watching a musician perform live, it's like there, there are things in the book that I look at and I'm like, actually, I would have added a little more of I should have added a little more of this or now that I've like done this, cooked this this way so many times, it's like, now I want to change this. And when you perform live, you can make all of those tweaks. I mean, there's, there's tons of albums, uh, like King Cruel is a great example. We saw him last year at the Fillmore, my girlfriend and I, um, saw him perform his newest album and like listening to that album, it was, it's great. But then, experiencing it live like the his band was amazing like super super dancey and jammy and way more fun than i anticipated and like that doesn't necessarily come through on the album and i think that um it's it's kind of the same with cooking it's like you can you can read read the things in the book make it yourself sure but you're never going to get the same experience of like i mean especially like coming to one of these pop-ups where it's we're cooking in a place that we don't normally cook or haven't cooked before using equipment, using different product. Um, and so you get this like really, really singular experience actually going and, uh, and experiencing someone's food in the place where they work or even just in like a pop-up setting. We're going to take a quick musical break and then we'll be back to talk about the evolution of the burger and the new cookbook. Here's a song from our archives live on Snacky Tunes. Thank you. 
number of chefs get their start around one item. I think the Franks from Frankie's Patinos talk about the meatball being the thing they perfected first and then everything bit out, built out from there. I'm curious about the evolution of your burger. How many years did it take? What was the standard you held it to? Was there anyone said it was good and you kept going? And what is really the thought process and evolution of how it got to where it'd be? Um, and what, how many iterations do you feel like you went through before you got it to a final state? So I, um, I worked in a restaurant called Town Hall. That was my first like kitchen job in San Francisco. I wanted to do something new and had a friend who was the chef at the Slanted Door. Uh, I applied, she asked me if I would be interested in a sous chef job. I was like 21 or 22. Um, I went and interviewed, she was totally into it, and the owner decided that I was way too young to be a sous chef at a restaurant that produces like $15 million in revenue a year. Fair. Very fair. Uh, so she, Justine, actually sent me to the, back to the slow club, uh, to Sante. He was looking for help. Um, I went and interviewed. I don't think I even had a resume, which I, anyway, um, he hired me as his sous chef in our like tiny three man kitchen. Um, I eventually became the chef of that restaurant when I was 23. Uh, and the, f he, he was, he was also the, the first person that like really made me think about where everything that we use to make the food comes from and the relationships with the people um, that produce the food that you cook in the restaurant. So he introduced me to a farmer who I still work with today. I mean, that was like 15 years ago. Um, made me a lot more just thoughtful about using what's available locally um, and all of that. So when I took over that kitchen, we made some tweaks to the burger we started using buns from Acme Bread, which I thought were more appropriately sized and more just consistently sized and a little bit different texture. Uh, we stopped using Nyman Ranch beef and started using beef from a really small operation called Prather Ranch, which is in uh, far northern California near Mount Shasta. Um, so those were like the first tweaks. And then when I was 25, we opened another restaurant in Dogpatch called Serpentine. We had another version of kind of the Slow Club Burger there that became popular. Um, after that, I when I left Serpentine, uh, we briefly did this like one night a week steakhouse pop-up in a club on Mission Street. It's actually the club where we eventually had the uh, Kroner Burger pop-up. Um, and it was, we wanted uh, to serve like steakhouse kind of classics, but also have things that were relatively inexpensive so that anyone could come and you didn't have to get like a $50 steak. Very reminiscent of your college days. For real. Um, so we had a burger and a like rolled French omelet. Um, and that was, that was where I started making the cheddar cheese mayonnaise. I think we were initially like we also did like a hot dog that this one like kimchi it had like kimchi and chicharrones and like this emulsified like bacon fat mayonnaise and the bacon fat um doesn't say emulsified super well but that kind of led to the like what alternative fats can we add to mayonnaise to make into a sauce um so that led to the cheddar cheese mayonnaise um and then 
started getting a brioche bun from Tartine then, which they didn't really do at the time. Um, and then around that time, I uh, Chad asked me to come and take over the kitchen of Bar Tartine. Um, and what we wanted to do was kind of bring bring the food at Bar Tartine more in line with just the, the general like aesthetic of, of Tartine. So more kind of Frenchy leaning, relatively straightforward, really good ingredients. Uh, and so before reopening Bar Tartine, I came to New York on like Burger Quest. <clears throat> and that was, that was the, uh, I remember I took a red eye and came directly from the airport or went directly from the airport to the Spotted Pig. Um, and had that burger and that, that was such a, an exercise in like very specific, straightforward simplicity. Like it is blue cheese and beef and a bun. Um, and the fries and the fries and the fries are important. Um, so I had that burger and that was also right around the time that Mineta Tavern first opened and had the black label burger. Uh, and they so they use their their dry aged steak scraps to make that burger, and that was also a revelation. Um, and then back in San Francisco, my friend Ryan Farr, who owns Four Five O Five Meats, um, before he had a restaurant or a butcher shop or anything, they just served food at the farmers market at the Ferry Building, uh, and he used the dry aged scraps from his beef to make his burger. And so that was another, like, revelatory. It's like, oh, here's this whole other, like, layer of stuff, of thought that can go into this ubiquitous thing to make it different and better and more interesting. And did you feel that along the way that you knew that you weren't quite there yet? Did it always feel like it could keep getting better? Totally. Um, because I was, I was always at the mercy of things, <clears throat> things made by other people. Um, so once we reopened Bar Tartine, I work with Ryan, he, again, because they only serve food at the farmer's market, he didn't have a ton of use for like all the steak cuts. He was getting whole animals from, uh, Mac McGruder and Mendocino. Um, and so we would take the steak sections of the beef and I mean, they were partially aged by him. We would finish aging them at Bar Tartine. And then he also produced our burger grind and then Tartine baked our buns we're still using the cheddar mayonnaise, um, grilled onions that were like just tossed in vinegar, but not like fully cooked. I think we put gem lettuce on that burger, uh, gem lettuce or bib lettuce, um, and mayonnaise. And like, that was it. Um, that was also, we, so we both from that, that pop-up that we did prior to Bar Tartine and at Bar Tartine, we served roasted bone marrow. Um, we had a customer who came in all the time with his wife. Uh, and would eat at the bar, and they would always get two burgers and a plate of bone marrow. It was actually Boz Skaggs. Um, and he came in once on his own and just ordered a burger. And so we were like, we should, well, he always gets the bone marrow. Like, let's just send him a piece of bone marrow on the side of the burger. And he put it on his burger, and so it became a thing. Wow. Um, but that at Bar Tartine was really where, where I got, you know, got into... The, specifically what cuts that we used, using strictly dry aged um, and aging it ourselves. And then once uh, I left Bar Tartine to work 
on a project in LA that ended up not happening um, and had not worked in like eight months and needed to do something and was asked by a friend if I was interested in potentially working privately for someone uh, and I didn't have a job. So I said yes um, and ended up living on a cattle ranch um, and that was where it like really opened up because I had the opportunity to just like see the see the difference in uh, breeds of cow and cr like cross breeds of cow, um, the difference in the age of animals, like the, the, the quality of the meat based on the age of the animal, uh, had a lot more time to play with dry aging. Um, and the, like the cuts that I used and the amounts of time that I had, I killed cows for the first time, killed animals for the first time, uh, which is something I had always kind of felt like, well, if you're going to eat meat like, it, and you're not, wouldn't be willing to kill the thing that you're eating, then you shouldn't fucking eat meat. Um, and then I was presented with that opportunity and, and had, had to do it, and that changed things significantly. It's amazing that you had this through line of like, a, I don't want to say a simple dish, but you had this focus that everything you learned went into. I think most chefs will be working on a menu or different ideas or creating like thousands of dishes and everything you did was funneled into a burger. Well, I mean, at, so at the same time, it was making all sorts of other food, but that like, for whatever reason, I, I, and I guess because it's the most accessible thing it was always a, a focus and it, be, I mean, it became slightly competitive and like, I want to make a better burger than this burger that I really love. Who's your like number two competitor? Or who is your gold standard? It, ch I mean, it changes. Okay. Then as of this week, uh, the, the best burger that I have had recently, uh, is the burger at Flora. What makes it so good? Limited number of components, cooked really well, really beautiful bun, super flavorful meat. And they use, I, I think they, it's an American Kobe, I believe, uh, which is kind of the opposite of what we use. Um, but it's just, it's really, really good. It's really thoughtfully constructed. It's the right size. The fries are super good. And is your burger done evolving or is it a forever tweaking process? Forever tweaking. What is the thing that you are trying to refine at the moment, or what, what do you feel has you stuck that you're looking for a solution for? So after working in restaurant, I kind of came to the realization that every, like every, almost everyone has eaten a hamburger and you know has some experience of it, has some taste memory of it, um, and it seemed like a great gateway or like access point to get people to think about where their food comes from. Like it's a really easy introduction to like, hey, yeah, you've had a hamburger at McDonald's. Here's this other hamburger and this is all that went into it. Um, so, I mean, that was, that was kind of the, the motivation to focus on burger. I mean, the way, like the, the burger that we serve at Kroner Burger is not inexpensive um the the goal is to get to a point where we where i can have a really thoughtfully made bun made with really good ingredients dry aged beef from as sustainable a source as possible all the right components and be able to serve it 
for like eight bucks to as to as many people as possible. Is that possible? I have a formulation, yes, but it I mean it requires some some infrastructural support. It requires Chad to stop all that other <laughs> bread making and focus on the buns. Uh, so you have a book come out. A uh, book came out. Your album. My, yeah, my album. A burger uh, to believe in. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. What can people find between these pages? All sorts of things. Um, so I, I wrote it with my friend Paolo Lucchese, who is the uh, editor of the food section of the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, and when we started writing it, I felt like I had this really like the intention was like, this is the only way to do it. This is the beef that you need to use. This is how you have to make the bun. Like that's it. Um, once we got into it and like really thought about it, we realized that that is really stupid and that it's a lot more important to, to give people a point of access, like at any level of interest. So within the book, like you there obviously is all of the Kroderberger information. Uh, there's a way to, to safely dry age at home. That's actually pretty inexpensive and easy. Um, there are all of the, you know, the recipes for the components of every iteration of the burger that I have ever made in addition to like tons of salads and sides and all that kind of shit. Um, but there's also like, you want to just make a better burger and you are going to buy everything at the gas station. Like, Here's some tips to do that. You, you know, don't want to dry age your meat and grind it yourself. Like, here's some ways to make what you're willing to do a little bit better. Um, and that, I mean, that was really the idea. And then, um, just, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different perspectives presented. Like, we did tastings with uh, Harold McGee, and I had kind of intended to like sit down with him and have him blow my mind with some like burger science that I had never thought of. And we did all these tastings. I was like, okay, like, what do you think? He's like, well, it's this thing that's not ever really the same. So to try and like quantify it is sort of a waste of time. Um, but I guess expressing, just expressing as much as possible about my process and what I like and then with information from all sorts of friends about what they like um, and what makes a good burger like that the, that was the result um, and I think it, it's a much better book for for it well I want to thank you for coming by on Snacky Tunes where can people find you order the book follow your travels eat your burger so we are doing pop-ups in New York. We will, uh, our next pop-up is at, actually at Tartine Manufacturing on the 25th. Um, and then we're doing a event at Justa in Venice Beach on the 27th. Um, and then all sorts of other stuff over the summer. Uh, we have our events listed at Kronerberger.com. Uh, we also I just opened a new restaurant called Henry's in Berkeley, uh, where we serve a delicious burger, uh, and uh, have a new restaurant coming to San Francisco, hopefully by the end of August. Amazing. Well, thanks for coming by. Thank you. We've got another song from the archives, and then we'll be back with the second part of Snacky Tunes here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. 
It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Uh, Just a quick reminder, we're in the midst of our summer fun drive, which goes all the way through July 31st. Help us raise $25,000. Member gifts include custom ringtones created by Jack Inslee, an HRN pen. Ooh, I want a pen. Uh, T-shirts, once-a-year subscription to Cherry Bob Magazine, and others. Go to heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate to become a member and support Heritage Radio Network. Rose. Hey. Hi. Good to see you. Great to see you. It's been a long time. It's been a really long time. I was just saying to Matt earlier that I don't remember how or when exactly we met, but I know it was a long time ago, and it was in New York somewhere. Yeah. Summertime? I, d- I think that maybe? anything that's like longer than eight or nine years, I just attribute to around. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also to having a, a twin brother, mm-hmm. um, both uh, either together or singularly, generally was out seven days a week forever. So yes. we just know everyone. Yes. But good to see you. Yeah. I always find it amazing when I reach out to bands I like, like yours, mm-hmm. uh, and be like, oh, wow. I know the people behind that. <laughs> I, I know that person. <laughs> so your band. My band. Is really great. Thank you so much. And it's really interesting because a lot of your lyrics, Prima, have to deal with the kind of intersectionality of things of not being so black and white and living in the gray. Mm-hmm. How did you evolve into this mindset and how do you run your lyrics through the filter of being in the gray? That's a good question. I don't know that I have ever experienced life as black and white, though I've been in many scenarios in which external forces want it to be. Uh, and so I think there's a there's like a constant narration that's happening in my head to just try to figure out how to how to live it. Um, and how to try to walk those lines. And then the result is a lot of the lyrics come from a stream of consciousness place that I then have to go edit many, 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 many times. Once they come out, like how many revisions do the lyrics have to go through? Oh, countless. I can't tell you how many. (laughs) Is is it a point where your band members are like, you know, 25 is good, Rose. You're like, like, you know what? I really think on 37, that's when we're really going to start to get to it. Yeah, yeah, right. Lucky number 37. Uh, Do they continue to evolve after they're recorded? Um, you know what, I, I have a, I feel a certain loyalty to the, to the actual like recorded fact. So once it gets to that point, I really try to not mess with it too much. Uh, I can't think of an occasion in which I changed it after the fact. But the meaning might evolve or they might mean different things to you. The meaning will constantly evolve. And I think I'm glad that I, I feel, uh, true to a belief that I think once the song is out there, and it's being received by anybody else. It's no longer my meaning. My association no longer has meaning. It's what is you, the audience, is receiving. But when you're on stage singing, I mean, there yeah. is some meaning that is to you of the time in which you laid it down. Does it take you back into that? Mi- Does it always put you back to that mindset? Yeah, actually. So I think I think we were connected first, Snacky Tunes, via Jamie Fry. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so Jamie Fry, I met Jamie Fry years ago. He saw a like a basement show that we played down in like Bensonhurst or something. And he wrote a review of Prima and he mentioned psychodrama in the review, which is something that I had never thought of before. And it was just one of those great occasions of like someone kind of like calling you out on something or finally giving you the language to talk about what you're doing. I have pictured countless um exes, lovers, people like points of contention, like out in the crowd while I'm singing the song. And that is something that does change from time to time. Something that's sometimes a song starts about one person and then suddenly it it's about somebody else. There's never been an instance where you're imagining someone and they're actually in the audience, is there? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say. <laughs> you, we don't we don't name names, but we need to hear stories. Uh, yeah, that, that may have happened. That may have happened. Did you know, did you know they were in the audience when you started singing and then you saw them? Yeah. Yeah. There was definitely a time where I was very frustrated with a situation and also an individual, that individual certainly happened to be there. And I remember after the fact, the individual said to me, wow, I've never seen you so angry. (laughs) Did they know that the song was about them? I think they figured it out. This is like the most uh, vague specific story i think we've ever heard <laughs> you use like pronouns and non-descriptors mm-hmm. what was this what was the song at, at least the name of the song the song is called master oh man <laughs> yeah and the oh and there is a lyric in the song um in which i say just like you buddy i am faking it wow yeah did they just go sit down when the song was over <laughs> or do, were they just like pounding whiskey in the back or did they just take the shame, the shaming, the secret shaming oh. and just stood there and enjoyed the rest of the show? No, I hope that they got something out of it somehow, maybe one day if they haven't already. I don't know. Maybe they feel flattered. I wrote about them, you know? I mean, I guess it always depends the context. I, be- I, I mean, I guess if you're like a narcissist, it doesn't really matter the context of the song. <laughs> it's just that a song was written about you at all. Yeah. Some people, some people are like going for that, man. And and I know that the band has been around for a few years now. Has the has the gray become more gray as you've had had access to an outlet and lyrics and like the defining and you know the, the middle become more middling. The middle, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of just like a like an intellectual evolution, like the gray feels more and more relevant. All the time, right? What's, what's a good example? Well, politics, like any, well, like what isn't political, right? But um, I don't know, like sexuality, for instance. I feel like in my like in my early years, there was a lot of black and white being taught to me, and I wasn't ever able to like live with it completely. And so at first it felt like a battle, right? Which is what I think a lot of the early premium material is about. Um, and now it's just like, okay, well like sexuality, gender, I don't, like even like h- how you like live your life financially, how you, how you have integrity. I don't know. As I get older and as I grow, it just seems like, the, like black and white almost seems like fallacy. Like it doesn't, like yeah, I mean, illusion. it just—it just seems like something that's written down on paper. Yeah, I mean, I struggle with the black and white, and that—that's never been—it's never all or nothing. Yeah, even though you sometimes feel that it is, it, it never is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's—it can be really useful in certain periods, in certain moments. It's like you're detaining children at the border. That's 
fucking wrong. Yeah, that's, that's very clear. That's pretty black and white. That's very clear. Yeah, and so like there is utility, but I find that a lot of times, in t- especially in terms of like personal life and inner life, uh, it's just it's all it's great. And a lot of your lyrics also do with feminine energy and the explosion of it. <laughs> and I'm curious about living in <laughs> living in the living in the middle of like what it means to be a feminist today and how that in, influences your work and and how that impacts the the stage performance and and what you say. Yeah. I mean, I'm like I feel like I'm a self-proclaimed like survivor of internalized misogyny. You know, like I there's there's I've I absorb so much self-hate and that is still something that I I expect to like kind of grapple with my whole life. And I do recognize that that comes from like multitude of outside sources that I have been permeating and growing, shifting for years and years. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's almost like I feel like the music that I'm creating is just, it's just like an ongoing inner monologue of coming up against these things and figuring out how I feel about them. So, and I'm, I am a woman. I identify as a woman. She, her, yeah, that's me. So like this is, it's through my lens and I'm a lady, I'm a lady. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't imagine it otherwise. I don't think I've ever written a song from the perspective of a man. Mm. And I will say lately I've been prioritizing, like, my interest in female perspectives. And I like that there's more and more of them. Um, I never felt like a minority as a person in the world or as a musician, but the the more I look around, the more I see that... Uh, women are underrepresented, but I see that it's a growing population and it's really exciting and it's really cool. And I, I definitely am biased. I'm like, want to know what women are talking about. Can we hear a song? Yeah. Let's, let's what are you going to play for us first? I'm going to play uh, Alter. I'm going to play Alter. This is a new song. Great. Yeah. Here we go. Prima live on Snacky Tunes.
you mentioned that you're now prioritizing the female perspective. How has Prima changed you as a person and a lyricist since its conception? Well, Prima gave me an outlet to speak and tell stories, and before then, I hadn't had one. So, uh, yeah, it's it's. I feel like it's made me a better person <laughs> to have a creative outlet. Um, there's a place that I can go to put uncomfortable feelings, vulnerability, anger, passion, things that don't necessarily always belong in certain <laughs> circumstances. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, not to, like, make a case for music as therapy, but, like, it definitely has... Uh, it's brought a lot of people into my life. Uh, it's made a better life for me. Where was it before Prima? Or where <laughs> <was> it? <laughs> uh, uh, before Prima, it was a tangle of trying to figure out how to meet other people's expectations and uh, uh, win approval of other folks. This was the first time I created a space for me. And how would the, I mean, Prima, it's just you today, but there's two other band members. Yeah. How have they influenced it and how have, they bro- how have their perspectives kind of helped shape the outlet and the output of the work? Well, I've been super, super blessed to work with a bunch of different musicians in the context of this project. Um, and so, like, every person along the way has, like, shifted my gaze radically, whether it was Butch Marigoni, who was the first drummer I ever played with, who was just, like, such an intense physical creature that, like, I went from having these, like, little, like, do-do-do songs to just being like, oh, my God, I can, like, I can roar physically in every way through these instruments and through my voice. And he, he like, he elevated me to a whole other space, right? I feel like we all need someone to teach us how to roar. Yeah. Like give us permission, like a good balance where someone's just like, you can roar. Right. You got this. And right? you're like, oh my God, I can be so much louder. Yeah. Oh yeah. Isn't there like a form of therapy, like primal scream therapy or something? If, I mean, sure. <laughs> if there isn't, then it's been done. Yeah. Or that like very bad scene from Garden State where they just scream yeah. into the void. I mean, have you ever screamed into the void? I don't know if I can ever consciously say that I've screamed into the void unless it's been just like I've lost my keys at the end of a drunk night, but that, like, that's not the same. <laughs> Have you screamed into the void? I've screamed a whole bunch. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I remember once this city, this city, this, can I curse on this show? This motherfucking city was getting me so like out of my mind one winter. I was like so cooped up and crazy feeling. Remember, it was like there was snow all over the ground. Pre Prima, no outlet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is this is what I had to do before Prima. Put on my running shoes in the snow, ran over the Williamsburg Bridge, yelling the whole time. Like there wasn't like I got to the top and I stopped and I screamed Garden State style. I was just running and screaming. Yeah. And like no one, and I was like, yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. Well, does I mean? <laughs> no, it does. Doesn't it, totally, it make sense? It does. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine that like nine people be like, what the fuck? And one person be like, I want to date yeah. that girl. I want her in my life. Yep. Maybe. I saw this woman running on the bridge screaming and I must find her. Wait, shit, man. Maybe I should do it again and see if it attracts a lover. <laughs> Loves running, screaming on the bridge. Yes. Not yes. at the apex no. the entire time. 
That's pretty good lung capacity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, you got to train, you right? Gotta train. <laughs> so you mentioned your first drummer who gave you the permission to roar. What about the other bandmates? Um, so I, I worked for a period of time with a guitarist named Jessica Ackerley, who like exposed me to a world of um, jazz guitar and just like more experimental, more daring guitar playing. Um, and that really like opened my eyes to the possibilities of the guitar rather than just like power chord, power chords, like building a song, but not thinking about the actual notes being played. Mm -hmm. Um, and since then I've like, I've always, since I worked with Jessica, I've always loved working with jazz guitarists because they're nerds, man. And they're (laughs) real good at what they do and they practice all the time and they're so smart. Um, so I've played with a guy named Frank Rathbone who has a band called Sick Tick. Right now I'm playing with this woman, uh, Katie Bonastoni, who is a beast and she's amazing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess that's, that's the other wonderful thing about being a songwriter is you get to like keep on collaborating with the coolest people and then they become part of, you know, family. Can we hear another song? Yeah. What are you going to play for us? I'm going to play a song called Susan. Um, which I feel I need to preface by saying I have lifted these lyrics from the journals of Susan Sontag. And uh, I don't know that I have permission to do that, but I have contextualized them in a mood, which is the song. I've named it after her. It's for her. Um, I think as long as you cite your sources, it's totally fine. Right? I haven't I haven't recorded or released this song yet. I feel like maybe when I cross that bridge I will figure out how legal this is. But until then, I'll just play the song. Um and it might give things away a little bit, but this was from an entry uh in her journals from before she uh left her husband and came out as a lover of women.
some new events coming up yeah that are going to be salon style that talk about the intersection of poetry and music yes will it be live performances and live poetry reading or will it be more about theory and form and how they intersect it's going to be it's it's going to be both uh no hi folks (laughs) (laughs) we're in a little Mm -hmm. fishbowl people eating pizza all the time yeah 10 years of people watching us so or us watching them. Does it feel is it comfortable for you now at this yeah. point? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <this> point, yeah. <laughs> the best is when little kids come up and like run in the window. Oh yeah. Yeah. I would I wish I could like they can't hear us, can they? No. no. Okay. Yeah, I could uh, could play them a song. Uh the the salon style moment uh is gonna be happening with the sound shop community. It's this rad group of um well it's led by a a Yale alum who's super super into all sorts of kinds of music he loves bringing different musicians together to just have moments of performance and then conversation amongst like colleagues maybe you never knew you never realized you had so um his name's Ak and I got together with him and decided that music and poetry and the intersection of how that plays out uh in different types of forms would be a really fun thing to explore in a evening. So we're going to have uh, musicians who are heavily like conscious of poetry and their songwriting. And then I think we're also going to have a couple of poets read um, with some improvised music happening at the same time. So it's, and it should be full of conversation, which I'm hoping to like spark and also like be witness to because these are like, questions I think about all the time that I don't have any I, I don't think that there's any answers to any questions about the intersection of music and poetry I mean <laughs> they're, they're so aptly joined is there a, a specific feeling or intention you want people to walk away with at the end of these series of events not how it'll happen but just an emotion or uh I'm hoping that I in this moment I can create a moment for people where they feel like there might be some like brethren around like, Oh, here are some more nerds who are interested in like the same things that I am, you know? Uh, because I feel a lot of times when I'm in the, in the like DIY rock community, Brooklyn music community, um, I find myself surrounded by people that I see as like really talented musicians and musicians, musicians and people who have been studying music their whole life, playing music their whole life. And I came to music, the more circuitous route of studying writing first. So I feel like sometimes I'm a writer's musician and sometimes I'm feeling like lonely. I'm like, where are my people? So maybe it's just a self-serving opportunity for me to try to meet some, make some friends. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I feel like anytime I meet someone, a songwriter like Katie, for instance, who's uh, 
playing guitar in Prima right now. She has her own project called Katie the King, and she's she's hyper involved in a like poetic process. And meeting her and hearing her work was just so heartwarming to me. I'm like, oh, there's someone else who is thinking about this stuff. So, so weird to feel alone in the city. I mean, when are you not feeling alone in the city? There are times. Really? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. I guess. How do you? How do you not feel alone? What? What makes you feel less alone? Well, the people yeah. in your life. Yeah. Um, and also, I think just finding community. Like, I guess existing a part of like heritage or the work that I do or just right. friendship. Yeah. I, know, I feel like when you move here, it's very lonely. I think like the city is isolating in the day to day. Yeah. But I think that you, there are more connections here than I would say in other cities that I've been to. Well, right. And I heard, I know that your brother moved to LA. Mm-hmm. You, this criticism of New York that you're raising is exactly the criticism that I hear of LA all the time. Like it's one of the most alienating, lonely places unless you have folks who can like pull you into the fold. Right. Is like, How's he doing out there? He's great. He just had a... Well, he and his wife. She did a lot of the work. <laughs> she, did a, she did most of the work. He was there in the beginning. Um, but, he, you know, they just had a baby girl and oh, happy baby. and just, you know, settled in. So. Oh, so your uncle. Uncle. Oh. Yeah. So, but then they have a good community. But I, I don't know. I think that in this, particularly in New York, it, it takes a while to find the people that you connect with. Yeah. But when you do, they've also had like a similar struggle to be like... So when you meet them... It's like, oh my gosh, it's like we've known each other for two minutes in 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Even though you've just met because like in the same way that you just said you met Katie, it's like, wow, I've just been doing my thing. And then when you meet, you're like, I understand your entire language and, yeah, and being. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so nice. The city, the city is so beautiful and it's so full of so many people. And I think a lot of times it's also like, it's intense and it's exhausting and you might feel the need to like protect yourself. But whenever you do, go out and branch out you i mean we're a city of misfits so many people have flood here from so many other places so many people grew up here and are like sticking it out here it's just there's so many people here there's so many people to befriend and get along with and do things with and just i don't know i'm such a hermit i want to be at home like reading books and writing songs and if i do too much of that i'll go i'll go nuts i have to yeah it's like an effort to make myself go it out. You have to live in the middle. I have to live in the middle of the gray. Thank you for joining us. Thank we wa- you. We want to make sure we have time for one more song, but where can people find you, listen to your work, watch your videos, which are super rad as well <laughs> and really fun, <laughs> um, and find out about your salons? Um, Bandcamp continues to be a place that I I post music, love, new love music. Bandcamp. Yeah, right? They're the best. Can't go wrong with it. No, they're, they're, the doing, they're, they're doing the best work. Yeah. So Bandcamp is always a great uh, tool for me and a great place to go, prima.bandcamp.com. I also tend to post uh, weird, somewhat illicit videos on occasion on my Instagram, and that is also a place that I'm sharing information. So that is at Prima Sounds Like. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, um, stay tuned. There's going to be a new record and lots of fun stuff happening later this year and early next year that I don't feel totally privy to speak to. That's fine. But those are two places that people could go to find out more. And hear Perfect. More. Yeah. Well, big thanks to uh, Christopher Cronin for coming on and talking about his new cookbook. And thank you for listening. We'll be back with next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. What's the name of the last song? name of the last song and this is the newest song is called a witness perfect yeah.
We'll see you all next week. to say I wouldn't wish it upon a soul But some of us have earned a little more Cosmic judgment or whatever you call it
talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.